is the Pink Floyd Fellows, featuring your fellas, Pete and PJ, leading you through the journey of the world's most popular progenitors of progressive psychedelic rock, Pink Floyd, aka the Pink Floyd Sound. Welcome to the to a brand new show, PJ. It's a new show, Pete. Welcome. It's a, it's a brand and new show. I can't believe it. It feels like, it just feels like we keep rolling this stone <laughs> up a hill, and then it keeps coming all the way back down. And we just keep starting again in the early 1960s, no matter I know, what we people, try. People think like, oh, they'll do something different this time. Nope, 1960s. White guys. Yeah, fuck you. Four British dudes in the 60s. Get yeah. out of town. Get out of town. So, it's yeah. kind of our uh, bread and butter. Yeah, we're talking Pink Floyd. And uh, it's pretty exciting, mostly because I need to figure out, as this song asks... Which one do you think pink is, PJ? I don't oh. know. I don't know. I saw a picture, and they're all either kind of black and white, or yeah, they like kind of a biracial. Hue. I think is the right term. <laughs> yeah, sure. Or kind of a pinkish hue to the skin, but then they're all actually like pretty pale. So I'm not sure. It's I don't understand. It, it's hard to say, because um, yeah. we're all pink on the inside, Pete. That's true. That's very true. Janelle Monet sang it best. Yeah. Yeah. Um, real quick, uh, is your mic, like, are you loud enough? You just got really quiet on my end, so I just oh. don't know. Am I loud enough on your end? You're a little quiet. I'm a little quiet. I'll just turn it up a little bit. Okay. How's that? Is that better? Great. That's okay. great. Okay. There we go. Uh, yeah, Janelle Monet yeah. sang it best. Yeah. Pink. It's just new. It's 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 new show jitters, Pete. Oh yeah, we we. It's like it like we we're starting again in the '60s, and it's like I'm starting again for the first time hosting a podcast. Yeah, we took yeah. roughly a month off and forgot how to do everything. Um, I forgot how to do a video call over my computer. I forgot how to log on to my computer. I had to find someone on Fiverr to come help me reboot my computer for the first time in a month. It was dusty in a corner next to my old laptop, the, the briefcase size motherfucker, yeah. that only starts up with a black screen with the little green numbers on it. Oh, yeah. like the Matrix. Exactly like the Matrix. It's how I played those Matrix video games. They were so oh. good. See, I've never actually seen The Matrix, but I watched that YouTube clip of the movie about the red pill and the blue pill over and over again. Oh, nice. Because I don't yeah. know if you know this about me, Pete. I'm red pilled the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, is that true? So, yeah. Well, you know, but we don't talk about politics on this show. And that's a new stance, actually, is previously. <laughs> and, <laughs> and previously, we've been really political. Like. Oh, so political. It's a little bit, you know, people started calling me George Stephanopoulos. I was so political on this show. And then they started calling you um, Carl uh, Urban because you were so political. And yeah. so, and then and they I started. And I Drudge Dread Mask. Exactly. And then they started calling us, instead of the 27 Club, they started being like, it's kind of more like CNBC over here because you're so political. Um, I think I picked the only one that's not political. What did I mean? MSNBC. I meant MSNBC. <laughs> CNBC is the one that shows like Shark Tank. Yeah. Um, MSNBC over here. It's so political. And so we decided on this one, since Pink Floyd is really not political at all, none of their members have political thoughts or ideas or like no. take time out during their concerts to talk about the current state of politics. Since they're so apolitical, we thought I'd take a page from their notes and mm -hmm. really skirt around what we might truly think 
uh, you know, about the state of the world today, yeah. PJ. It's a band much like the Grateful Dead, where it's like mm-hmm. listening to their music, you can't tell where their political no. leanings are whatsoever. Yeah, you really have no idea. And it's like, you know, they've never even like courted controversy over political statements or anything. Um, no. And so just like on the Rolling Stones, we were like, you know what? We're not going to degrade women at all during this run just because they were so respectful towards females in general like we're gonna we're gonna you know what we'll take a step back during the beach boys we were pretty misogynistic we're gonna take a step back during the stone studs just to follow their lead their example for 50 years but uh so anyway and i would like to take this time to apologize for a statement i made on the rolling stone stud Uh and it's a perfect timing because the song is ending (sighs) i called patty for patty boyd a fox and i I'm really sorry about that. I know it's yeah. uh, not a term that we should use in this day and age. And No, uh, comparing women to animals is never... It's, no. It's not okay anymore, PJ. Because people don't know what your opinion on animals is, you know? That's where it's at. Some people hate foxes. Chickens, they hate foxes. That's true. They so, do. They're scared of them, man. I got a lot of backlash for that on Twitter and mm-hmm. on uh, Parler. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I just thought I'd come out and make a statement that says, I'm sorry, and I'll do better. That's nice. Hey, speaking of, um, now that we're not being political anymore, you get one of those Trump NFTs. <laughs> oh yeah, I spent big money on that thing. I got I got one each of all of them, but I'm keeping them in their wrappers because I think they might be worth something someday. So I'm not gonna touch them. They're going in the toy safe, you know. Yeah, I think that's smart. Oh. There was a a point where uh, I accidentally bought Taylor Swift tickets when I was on the wait list for. The Trump tickets. I wasn't sure which one I was on. It yeah. was just really confusing. You had to wait in line for both online, and I, uh, I have like twelve Taylor Swift tickets. God, and I remember. I just that, don't know where to do with them. I remember the week of Christmas that that BuzzFeed headline. Oops, my dad bought me Trump NFTs instead of Taylor <laughs> Swift tickets, and now I'm really mad at him. Yeah, it was so terrible. Yeah, and you know. Once again, I'd like to apologize for working with BuzzFeed in um, writing that article because, you know, I feel like there's probably bad stuff that BuzzFeed did, and yeah. um, anybody who's ever written for them should probably apologize. Yeah. Um, do you, you ever try to get a writing job on BuzzFeed? Oh, every t- I email them, like, once a week or so, just with, like, a list of, of headline ideas or just, like, <laughs> and what if the survey said this? Um and usually they don't respond one time they did but i think it was by accident because they said no thank you and i was like you must that must be Mm. someone else you're responding to but yeah um i was just kind of thinking like how many speaking of someone who's not political at all uh Mm. taylor swift how many do you think (laughs) what percentage of her shows are filled with people who voted for donald trump (laughs) oh my god 45%. 45%. Yeah, like a surprisingly or more like high 44%. Amount. Oh no, 45 was good cuz that's yeah. Trump's number. And that's what you get though when you aren't political at all is then then people think that they can vote for Trump and then go see you. And that's Yeah, kind of well the and, lesson Eric Clapton's learning. <laughs> it, it it's also a lesson you learn when you do country music for mm. the first half of your career. I was going to say like I bet the percentage like isn't i bet the percentage is not equal to the percentage of people who voted for trump wherever she's playing you know what i mean yeah like so say 
20% of like New York City voted for Trump. Probably not that many. But like if she's playing Madison Square Garden, I bet 2% of that concert voted for Donald Trump. But in like Texas, let's say, well, no, but then it would be lower if we're going with like 45%. Because I think, I think I you're probably think right. Like it's it probably equivalent. about 50-50. Yeah. But then, so it's lower in places that are more liberal, but then also lower I don't know. Whatever. I also feel like the people who liked her when she was doing country music and still, you know, like are occasional fans. I feel like they're also people that don't keep up with like Taylor Swift said this, you know, that's probably true. Although. Yeah, potentially. I don't know. I don't know. And if you'd like to weigh in on this, you can email us at beachboysboys. At yeah, gmail. please email us at beachboysboys at gmail.com. And that actually brings us back uh, on subject. Thank you, PJ. Uh, which is that this hey, is a welcome. Beach Boys Boys production. Uh, this is our, if you're just jumping in now, uh, this is our fourth show under the Beach Boys Boys umbrella. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started out with, the titular Beach Boys Boys, where we of covered course. the career of the Beach Boys from the perspective of two boys from the beach, the Beach Boys Boys. I suppose what we should say is this is the fourth mainline uh, Beach Boys Boys production. That's we had, true. Yeah. Other That's such kids as the Hermans Hermits Hermits. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Three guys in a cave. They haven't left for 20 years until they finish going through the Hermans Hermits discography song by yeah. song. Which you wouldn't and think it would take also, them that long. No. Well, they've decided now to analyze every single Peter Noon Sirius XM show. <laughs> that makes so, sense, yeah. And then once they finish that, they're going to jump on uh, his daughter's, God, I cannot remember her name for my life, um, but his daughter's Sirius XM show. Uh, so they're just going to stay in the Noon family. Um, that makes sense. Julie, maybe? Natalie? Ju- Natalie, Natalie Noon? Noon. Yeah, that's great. That's great alliteration, actually. Good job. Good that's job. very good. Yeah. Um. And so yeah, there are some there are some fly by night shows that have been riding our coattails for far too fucking long. We're cleaning house. We got really bloated during the Rolling Stone studs, our second mainline show. Yeah. Uh, we got really bloated. Uh, I think, you know, there were about thirty or forty other shows, and now, you know, just like Facebook, we're cutting we're cutting it down, man. We're firing about eleven thousand of our workforce. Yeah. Um, we're making it of the eleven thousand and two that we have. Yeah. Uh, and then we're we're maybe gonna bring on one more uh, for a secret project coming up, but um, I don't think we have to be so secret about it, Pete. I think we could plug it on this show. Uh, maybe that'll be at the end of the episode. Yeah, I uh, think we'll so. plug it. Yeah, you can um, you can wait till then, assholes. <laughs> uh, and don't sorry. you do that thing where you were, listen on four times speed or skip right to the end. Oh man, I already have way too high of a voice. I can't even imagine it on four times speed. That'd be disturbing. Did you know that people do that? They'll listen to podcasts at one and a half or two times speed. I the only way that makes sense to me is if it's like a news podcast. Um and or like some people listen to some where it's like this day in history kind of shit. I I could kind of understand it if it's that, but a comedy podcast I don't understand at all. Yeah. There are people who listen to every single podcast at two times speed. <laughs> it's like how busy are you nobody's that busy god bless you Pete. i've sometimes been in the whole like 300 400 podcasts deep and i listen to them at half speed because at that point it's just like i need to punish myself for for getting that far behind yeah. uh we're back a bit to of the, a sadist yeah exactly back to the task at hand and then Sorry, we followed Pete. that up with our most popular run yet the 27 club where we analyzed <laughs> each and every member of the 27 club yeah that um, one listeners loved that one oh yeah our 
our so listenership skyrocketed. Yeah. And so now we're, but what we learned is that people really just want to hear about white guys from the 60s. So we're going back yeah. to our roots, uh, you know, starting out with Robert Johnson and then Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> no way. That was too much. Yeah. yeah. And then like a women, a woman was thrown in there. This is not good. Two so, women. One of them was Jewish. Two whole women. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we're going back to the early 1960s uh, to talk about four white lads from Britain. And no, not the ones you're thinking of. We're talking about Pink Floyd. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought we were talking about, once again, Herman's Hermits for a minute. And I was like, I know. we can't cop their bit. No, well, I just refuse to live in a cave. And is it hermitage yeah. if you live in your own house? Or does it, I think it, it would work if you're if in you a house. in somebody else's house, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're a hermit if you're that, like, those people. Do you remember a couple of years ago on the internet, someone posted a photo of, like, a stairwell. They had a little cupboard under their stairwell. Where yes, they I opened it one this. day and it, like someone had left shit in there, so they figured out someone had been living in their house for some yeah, unknown amount of like time. Like in their crawl space kind of situation. So if that guy had been there for a few years, he's a hermit. Or she. That's a good point. Or yeah. they. They. Okay. Yeah. Um, I Speaking of lads from Britain, I meant to text oh. you this the other day, you and Jake this, and I think I might as well just say it on the podcast. Why not? If somebody says that their favorite Beatle is John Lennon, I and this might just be me um, not caring for somebody else's opinion or gatekeeping or a mixture of the two, but if somebody says their favorite Beatle is John Lennon, I immediately think they don't know anything about the Beatles and they're not an actual Beatles fan. And I think that is probably wrong of me, but also, how the fuck is John Lennon somebody's favorite Beatle? They're a f- Three other Beatles better than he is. Two, I was gonna arguably. Say, yeah, that would be funny to text to Jake because he is. is he I'm not John sure Lennon if. Boy? Oh, yeah. No, I thought you knew that. I thought that was part of your joke. Oh, But I was no. going to say, I don't know that he maybe still is, but at one point I would say he's probably tied with you for the biggest Beatles fan that I know. And uh, his favorite Beatle is like by a country mile, John Lennon. He's That's pretty obsessed. That's insane. Because yeah. the obvious choice is George Harrison. And then Paul McCartney's a very, very, very close second. And then it's so, a tie way back for Ringo and John, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. So we'll anyway. get back to the lovable ads from Liverpool in a minute. But yeah. I think we covered this when you talked about the Let It Be movie for like five consecutive 27 Glove episodes. <laughs> yeah, but, that sounds right. Um, I will say I grew up a big fan of the Beatles, as did many uh, white boys. And... um. I read like a lot of Beatles biographies and, you know, like I feel like I knew a lot about the Beatles and knew a lot about them kind of as people, at least through biographers eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, And I always disliked. I I also never understood why John would be someone's favorite. To be fair, he's also the one who I've listened to the least in terms of his solo music. Well, in Ringo, obviously. But like, I've mostly listened to Paul McCartney and George Harrison solo stuff. And so, well, they Maybe. got the best solo stuff. And, like, since I'm going to connect through music probably more than anything, it's it's possible that I'm missing some real gems from John Lennon that, that would nah. get me into him. So, anyway. So, that's part of it. But I will say, watching Let It Be, and I, I actually think I said this exact thing, same thing on the podcast before, but that is the first time watching that documentary that it clicked why people would like John just because sitting there, like just them sitting around and messing around with each other, 
and Joshin really made me go like, oh, I understand. I get it. John is like a human being to me now instead of just kind of this because he's pretty removed. He's pretty yeah. acerbic. His even his music is more brash and like less open than Paul's. And so or George's. And so I just never really got it. And I feel like that that documentary kind of made me realize like, oh, I understand why someone would love John now. See, and and I I get that. I get liking him more as a person after seeing that. However, I think George Harrison and Paul McCartney are so much more personable in that because George is there just like, I'm sad my friends don't like me. And then Paul McCartney's like, oh, I just wrote an album. And then uh, Ringo's napping. And then John Lennon's like funny and like personable in there. But like, I just think he is, he's not the least personable Beatle, but like, I just don't like his music as much. And I feel like George and Paul are just more interesting. Anyway, we don't have to keep talking about this. I just, that was a thought I had the other day and I thought I'd bring it up. Yeah. Oh, that's fine. Um, I mean, we can keep talking about it and then we can just edit it out. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) Because I have more thoughts. (laughs) Uh, I was just going to say, I think the Beatle that comes off looking the worst in that documentary actually is Paul. And I say that as a gigantic Paul fan, but he just seems like... He definitely steamrolls everybody. Yes, exactly. Like, he definitely always thinks he's doing the right thing, and he probably goes home with Linda every night and is like, I'm just so worried that people don't like me or that I'm doing the wrong Mm -hmm. thing or that George is mad at me. Like, his heart's in the right place, and he's definitely trying but then anytime it actually comes down to it, it's just kind of him being like, no, we're going to do it this way, though. And this is yeah. the right way to do it. And then they just do it Paul's way. And then, But the thing I do appreciate about him is, is he's quick to apologize. Like, That's in, true. the day after he went to George and was like, I'm sorry, I didn't, like, yeah. understand that, you know, you felt this way and I'm really sorry about it. And Yeah, that's true. And I do think, like, over their lives, he's definitely the s- second best, well... I forget, did George do anything? I feel like George did something kind of weird. George being that close with the Maharishi for so long is a little bit of a ding against him, annoyingly, now that we know what we know about the Maharishi. So, yeah, I think that, I would guess that he didn't know anything about that, though, because a lot of people didn't. Yeah, that's um, kind of true. It's possible. And um, then maybe friends with Eric Clapton was, was Yeah, weird. him being like BFFs with Eric Clapton is a little sketch. In but hindsight. Eric Clapton didn't become a terrible person until much later, I feel like. Well, His son died, there, and then it all went down. <laughs> wasn't there a whole thing we found out when the COVID stuff came up that he had some interviews from, like, the late 60s where he was being kind of racist? No, that was the 90s. Oh, okay, like, okay. That was I, thought, the 90s. I thought they were earlier. My bad. It might have been even, like, 2006 or something. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Where he was like, why are people wearing saggy pants everywhere? And by people, I mean... Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. Wink, wink. Why yeah. are the people I don't like that are hanging around my street now wearing... Yeah, anyway. Um... <laughs> uh oh my god i love i still see brought up online like in i'm kind of a forum guy i'm not gonna yeah get, we go know into detail about, about that yeah. but i love that some people still bring up like why do people wear their pants so saggy now and i'm like literally where are you living the whole like showing your boxers <laughs> thing has not been a mainstream style for a decade at least yeah, it's that wild was, that people would still like, and I definitely see it still brought up as like fucking kids these days. <laughs> and not only was that like, that was a thing when we were in middle school, maybe yeah, not yeah. high school, yeah. high school. It was like, no, you wear tight jeans. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. And that was because we lived in Anaheim, California, which as everyone knows is about 10 years behind the rest of the world in yeah. terms of style. So really it hasn't been a, 
quote unquote thing worn, since the early 2000s, probably. 2004. Yeah. Everybody stopped wearing baggy ass pants in 2004. Yeah. And like, and it was specifically like a West Coast thing. Like, I feel like yeah. you didn't see people in New York City or like Brooklyn or wherever, like wearing baggy pants. You know, mm-hmm. there's a very different style between the East and West Coast. And I feel like it just was not that, not a thing. But anyway, I don't know. Those are the same people that we love to see on YouTube on YouTube videos being like, kids these days don't listen to music, real music like this. Yeah, who's still listening in 2023? I just spent, and that's why we had to take a break, folks. I had to spend the first half of January going through every YouTube comment that I had ever left on old music and editing it to say 2023 instead of 2022. Absolutely. Well, we're so we're talking about Pink Floyd and PJ... Let us I'm glad carry. we got that clean when you have nuts in your mouth or whatever it is. <laughs> I just got a couple is it of nuts. Did I nail it? Yeah, I just got a couple of nuts in my mouth. Yeah. Um, the show hasn't changed, folks. <laughs> <laughs> you know All how right. I could tell you were eating nuts of some sort? You're like digging way in the back. Because you could see the tongue. dick and I'm sticking out. Because there's a guy's butt on my screen, is why. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um,. Well, let us tarry no further, PJ, and talk about the Pink Floyd sound. I promise I won't do that for more than this episode. Okay. Um, I'm going to hold you to that. So let's get into our first. This is everyone, from what I understand from our listeners, this is everyone's favorite part of every single run is in our first episode when we ask, PJ, what's your personal history with Pink Floyd? Oh, God, what a classic segment. So let's get into the pink a little bit. Um, I only know their hits, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, like, I, I grew up listening to classic rock radio, so I know all the songs played on classic rock radio. And then um, I never really got... My, my fandom is... I wouldn't even say fandom. That My knowledge and what I've heard of their music is very surface level. I have, we, Peter and I both took this class in college at different times, but we both took history of rock and roll where we did the, um, dark side of the moon wizard of Oz thing. Um, and so that was the first time I'd listened to dark side of the moon all the way through. Um, and I've heard wish you were here all the way through. And that was cause I was like, well, I mean, this is a classic album. Why haven't I listened to it? Uh, I'll save my opinions for it for a later episode. Um, And, you know, besides that, like, I don't know much about the history. Like, I could probably name all the members. But other than that, um, you know, pretty surface level. I've only listened to Dark Side of the Moon two times through. One time was in History of Rock and Roll. And then the other time was last year in Nashville. Um, Me and friend of the show, Paul, and friend of the show, uh, Sean... Uh, they took edibles and we went to a uh, planetarium and watched uh, a Pink Flo- or Dark Side of the Moon laser light show. Wow! And I was I did not take an edible, but it was fucking cool as shit. It was honestly yeah. like he was like we were like what do you what do you want to do? Like we're visiting and he was like, um, do you guys want to go see Laser Floyd at the planetarium? And we we're both like, yeah, that sounds fucking awesome. And yeah. it was like that's super I, cool. I hate how much I like like planetarium laser shows because i've been to like three and every time i'm like this is fucking cool as hell yeah i i should start doing drugs and going to them i think 
Yeah, PJ, you should start doing drugs. That should be maybe, you know, I don't want you to change who you are, uh, but maybe that should be part of your <laughs> bucket list before you tie the knot. Hey, now. Yeah. Okay. Right on. Um, oh, yeah. For everybody out there, I'm going to marry my brother, Melanie. Yeah. Um, soon. So. Cousin? I forget. Whatever. Who knows at this point? Um, Nice. Well, I have definitely listened to more Pink Floyd, although upon reflection, less than I thought that I had. I was kind of okay. a uh, small pool that went really, really deep when it comes to my Pink Floyd fandom. I basically only listened from like 72 to 80, but listened to those like five albums really, really intensely and got into like a bunch of live bootlegs from that era. Um and was really of which there are many yes yeah i didn't so, realize yeah that was such a thing i didn't realize it was no. like kind of grateful dead levels of like yeah bootleg shows and stuff yeah. and got really Intel. yeah got really into all their tours and like the differences yeah. between and all that kind of stuff and so listened like very very intensely through college is definitely part of my intense stoner years um and that pairs really well with Pink Floyd, gotta say. And uh, yeah, enjoyed the hell out of them. They're one of my favorite bands for a long time. They still have some of my favorite music. Uh, but yeah, kind of uh, when we decided to do the show, I went back through their discography and knew surprise like less than I kind of had thought. I thought I had listened to more of them, but the stuff that I have listened to, like I said, I've listened to a million times. So, um. Yeah, and then I've heard a little bit of their early stuff, only occasional songs, kind of their bigger hits from the early days. Um, so I'm vaguely familiar with their older sound that we're going to talk about on today's show, um, but not as much as I'd like. So like, I'm really excited to get into the late 60s, early 70s stuff because they're a really interesting band because by you know Dark Side of the Moon, they have a very distinct sound that they kind of and like process that they kind of take through the end of their career mm-hmm. and so but then if you go listen to like their first album like this it's you can see some through lines but it's pretty damn different and so i'm excited to see them get to uh the band we know and love and i'm curious whether it's going to be like the stones where they just flip a switch one album and all of a sudden they're incredible but then also really different or whether it'll be kind of a weird slow process yeah, I, I don't want to spoil anything for like later in the episode, but it no. is. I was shocked at this album, and yeah. I was wondering the same thing. Where I was like, like I don't really hear any. There's one thing that I think is like maybe a through line, but everything else I'm like, this is a not the band I know. Yeah, well, and there's some good reasons for that, which we will we will get to as we go through their history here, but um. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and get into their history here. Uh, oh. <laughs> is there anything else about Pink Floyd you want to or you want to throw out there or, or you know? One time uh, I was on a mission trip with my church down in Mississippi after Katrina. Um, wow, you care more than George Bush did. I know. I also care more about black people. Yeah. Um, not I'm hard to take that out. Yeah. Cause, well, not hard. No, we're but. political now. Or wait, no, oh. we're not political. No, now? we're not. God political. Damn it. No, I, I don't just remember. don't want to quote Kanye. Um, <laughs> I think that's a bad move at the moment. Um, I think Kanye in 2004 were safe. 
but okay okay we'll um see. <laughs> we'll see how much more stuff comes to light i don't know <laughs> um but there was this my brother was there and there was this kid wearing pink floyd uh, pajama bottoms and my brother's oh, like such a classic D- look the oh, dark yeah. side of the moon logo pajamas Hell exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it was the dark side of the moon mixed with their like pink floyd like just mm. font yeah, you yeah. Know? it was like both of those everybody's seen that pair of pajamas um and my brother was like can you even name three uh uh i feel like this exact same story has happened with a rolling stones t-shirt at some point but go ahead it it could be well i don't remember my brother ever doing it for the stones but um and then the kid named three and he's like okay what about three albums and then he named three albums and he was like i'm a huge pink floyd fan yeah and then my brother looked like an asshole and it was like the first time i was like oh my brother's dumb he's a bad guy <laughs> all right well that's a my formative who, experience yeah yeah nice. my brother who probably at the time could not have named three pink Floyd <laughs> albums yeah. by the way he knew the name of the band because it was written on the pants yeah, yeah. well and otherwise I he would have been convers- like do you what that one band yeah. with the logo What's yeah the, the triangle thing? band everybody knows the triangle band and i'm not talking about the one they put on in your elementary school um but there was another time oh we were having a conversation about rush and we were like at somebody's graduation like dinner and he was like i bet you don't even know what rush's most popular song is and i was like it's fly by night and then yeah. he was like no that's not rush and he's like it's <laughs> tom sawyer and i was like no fly by night is 100 percent by rush yeah. and then somebody from the other table was like no that's a they're both rush songs like he, yeah. pj's right and I remember feeling again like, oh, my brother's an idiot. <laughs> Important lessons to learn in, yeah. in a man's life, whether your brother's smart or not. What's so the, the first Pink Floyd yours? members? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the first Pink Floyd members met in 1963. PJ, wow. Maybe the latest starting 60s band we've run across so far i think the stones were 62 and the yeah. the beach boys were 60 i mean they were brothers so but yeah um and then yeah, I, think I think hendrix was 60 as well or i mean he started playing in the 50s but i think his first band was 60 or 59 even i want to say i would say 61 but well, nevertheless either way than this yeah yes um, so they met in 1963 while they were all at architecture school at London Polytechnic, uh, which hey, is just really funny. their music makes a lot of sense now. <laughs> yeah, right? They were the original math rockers, yeah. um, which define math rock. No one can. Roger Waters uh, and Nick Mason uh, were Solve the first two members uh, who started a band with some other students. Um, they later added in a guy named Richard, a.k.a. Rick Wright. Um cool name yeah so the first group was had six people in it and they called themselves sigma six and roger Hmm. waters and rick wright both played guitar although they would later switch instruments Uh, and then nick mason they were both playing guitar so they both they switched instruments with one another yeah they both played so they're both just still playing guitar yeah 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 uh yeah that's always lame when a band is like we're gonna switch instruments for this next one and then just the guitar players swap yeah it's not as interesting i gotta play your rickenbacker now yeah yeah uh and then nick mason was their drummer 
So at a certain point, they added another guitar player. So then Roger Waters switched to bass, where he stayed ever since. Although Did I mean, they change their name to Sigma Seven. Yeah. Um, no, they actually ran through a few names at this point, including Megadeth, but with two G's. Whoa. So I guess Megadeth got away with it. Um, and then they also called themselves the Abdabs, the Screaming Abdabs, and the Tea Set, uh, which was named for their practice space, a tea room at their college. The Tea Set is kind of a great name. Well, that's what they stuck with for a couple of years, at least. Okay. That's what they kind of landed on. Um. So, in 1964, some other members left, and they added a new guitar player, a guy named Sid Barrett, uh, who Roger knew since mm. they were children. They had grown up in the same neighborhood, and he'd gone over to his house to play guitar sometimes. And uh, this so, is not the same Sid from the Sex Pistols, correct? No, different one. Different okay. Sid. Yeah. Okay. That guy's a little more vicious. Uh, Barrett, ask me. Yeah. So Sid had moved to London to go to art school, not architecture school. And let me tell you, these colleges did not get along. One time, the fraternity of the architecture school went over to the fraternity of the art school, and they stole everyone's underwear. Oh, it's pretty funny. Uh, knickers, I mean knickers. I forgot. Oh, we were in hey, foggy cool old there. London town. Uh, So eventually uh, other members left, a lot of rotating cast here in this band. And so Sid became the lead guitar player and singer. And this left a group of four, Roger Waters, Rick Wright, Nick Mason, and Sid Barrett. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Which, if those names don't sound familiar, they don't seem like they sound familiar to PJ. Those are (laughs) four famous members of the band Pink Floyd. Okay, okay. (laughs) Those are the four I know. Yeah, okay. But then there's a fifth guy for a while, right? There's a fifth guy that we'll get to. So so around this time, they booked a gig as the house band at a club uh, where they played three 90-minute sets per night, which is fucked up. That is wild. Which, okay, so we, yeah, we've talked about this before. I think they got a break in between, but yes. Um, we talked about this before with 90 minute sets. I, my, that's a whatever 90 times three is, which is 270 hour set. Yeah. Minute. Yeah. Not 270 hours. (laughs) Um, well, we talked about this. I think it was Janice Joplin. Yeah. Big Brother and the Holding Company were a club band, like back in the days when clubs just had bands and because they didn't have DJs back then. Yeah. Uh, for many reasons. Um, and so. Yeah, so they got their start just like Big Brother and the Holding Company as just plain noise for people to hang out at. And we'll get to a little bit more detail about that further on. Um, Can I, I just want to go on like a small tangent for a second. Absolutely. Um, Do you think when clubs made the change from like having a live band to like playing records, people were like, I don't want to go to that one. All they do is play other people's music. Much like how I feel like during the early 2000s, that was like it was a shift from wedding bands to like just having a DJ yeah. where people were like, well, you know, you can't just have a DJ. You have to have a band. Do yeah. you think it was similar? Honestly, probably. Yeah. Like for for a little while, there probably was a stigma of having the DJ. And then once it became generally popular, it was fine. Yeah. Because we and know now, like at least by the disco era, it was just DJs. That's so. true. And and now, if I go to a brewery and there's a band playing, I think, well, I'm going to sit kind of far away. <laughs> it's kind of annoying. <laughs> Which is funny, because I myself have played at breweries and probably annoyed some people. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, in order to fill up three 90-minute sets per night, um, they would, uh, and they were too lazy 
to learn more songs. <laughs> so they decided Hilarious. to extend their material. Uh, so apparently, by the way, Nick Mason came up with this. Leave it to the drummer to do this kind of advanced thinking. They figured out, quote, songs could be extended with lengthy solos. Oh. <laughs> I know. Pretty, pretty incredible. Uh, I don't want to necessarily call anyone a fucking caveman, but yeah, no doy. Um, they ch- <laughs> <laughs> so they did that for a while. In 1965, they had to change their name at the last minute because they booked a show with another band on the bill called the T-Set. <laughs> oh, wow. And so Sid uh looked through just like the rolling stones uh looked through his record collection and found an album and found albums by blues musicians pink anderson and floyd council and so decided Mm. to call their band the pink floyd sound and then they would obviously eventually drop the extra words and just become pink floyd oh pulling a zuckerberg that's right uh yeah and justin timberlake told them to drop the the too oh wow by 1966 has been around forever yeah, I know. <laughs> he looks great. Real Brad Pitt type. Uh, but we don't like him now. We're not getting political. Never mind. So by 1966, the Pink Floyd sound, uh, we're doing pretty well in the local scene. And we're noticed by this guy named Peter Jenner. Ooh, uh, any who, relation? Uh, to Chris? I think so. Um, who is apparently particularly impressed with Sid and Rick Wright's sonic effects they pulled off on stage. Um Although I'm kind of, I really kind of am curious what that looked like because apparently also their set list at the time was mainly just R&B covers. So I guess they made them really groovy. Who knows? I really wish there was, are there recordings of this? <laughs> it's possible. I didn't do that much. I would love to hear that. So Peter Jenner, along with his business partner, Andrew King, became the band's manager. Uh, they had like a, a LLC kind of thing that then, yeah, managed the band. They bought them new instruments and equipment and started hooking them up with gigs uh, in the London art kind of underground experimental scene where they thought they would fit better. Um, And at this time, Pink Floyd also started gaining a reputation for their live shows because aside from the cool music, they also started trying out some light shows along with their music, which was pretty advanced for the time and pretty advanced for like a group to do it rather than a club to just have random light shows that played while a band played, like for them to have their own lights that they would bring around is pretty, pretty advanced. So these guys, Peter Jenner and Andrew King also had connections to journalists and they got Pink Floyd, some good press from local papers and local music journals, uh, where the best quote I found was someone wrote about their show very positively and described it as quote, apparently very psychedelic. Which just makes it sound like someone's mom came to the show. They tell me this is psychedelic music. I don't know. I didn't like it, but the kids seem to be loving it. Yeah. Uh, So later that year, the uh, I I actually wrote this down. I am not sure if this will come up later. I didn't do. I didn't read this far in advance, but I'm kind of thinking it will based on previous uh, iterations of band members being involved in business. I'm assuming Ah. this is going to somehow ruin or help their career. Uh, but they bought into the Jenner and King like LLC thing. It's Black Hill Enterprises. So everyone's a one-sixth member. There's six of them bought into this group. Ooh. Yeah. This so, could go either way. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see if it comes up again. They played more shows, diversified their set list with more Sid Barrett originals. He was the songwriter of the group. 
uh, but they were kind of struggling to gain traction outside of their clubs. Uh, they at one point got booked at a Catholic youth club for some reason, and the owner refused to pay <laughs> them because he said they didn't actually play music. <laughs> and wow. apparently Jenner and uh, Peter Jenner and Andrew King took them to cl- small claims court over it, and the judge upheld the ruling that they could not. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't actually play any music. Which makes wow. me really curious, did they actually just fuck around or did they play their regular set list? You know, like, were yeah. they just playing like weird instrumental jams, in which case maybe, because it was probably yeah. just a wall of noise. Or did yeah. they play their regular set list and that was so foreign to people at the time? Oh, they were like, I bet that's this. what it was. They were like, I didn't hear a single chorus in there. Yeah, yeah. They were playing oh, R&B no, covers. They were just, I didn't hear a single chorus in there. <laughs> Same thing, posh British guy, redneck, you know. Same shit, man. Uh, so, but they found a home base at the UFO Club uh, where they mm-hmm. developed a big fan base, uh, you know, who enjoyed the improv, who enjoyed the psychedelic light shows, and Sid Barrett was apparently kind of a crazy, uh, engaging guy on stage, would leap around and scream and, you know, be generally wild. So... In 1967, uh, they were noticed by EMI and were signed to a record deal with a 5,000 pound advanced. Um, And also, a note to the press. How many dollars is that now? uh, Good question. Good, PJ? You'll have to get your inflation calculator out Uh, and then your uh, pounds. Well, actually, helpfully, the Wikipedia page already did the inflation. So I know it's about 20,000 pounds today. Not just pounds to dollars. I'm trying. Google's thinking. Why is it not working? It should be about the same because the pound is $1.2. Okay. So it's a little bit more, but um, not by a lot. Uh, also, w- when they were signed, this gives you an idea, by the way, of kind of the... Uh, w- we've had a little bit of this before, especially with the Stones, where there was some fear about you know rock music and these wild young kids. This kind of gets at the fear around specifically the psychedelic kind of underground scene. Uh, When they were hired or signed to EMI, their note to the press said that, quote, the Pink Floyd does not know what people mean by psychedelic pop and are not trying to create hallucinatory effects on their audiences. Wow. So they really had to distance themselves. What year is this? 1967. Okay. Which, and especially Britain was, as we know, a lot more buttoned up about this sort of stuff. Where I mean, in yeah, America, they were only there playing was music on like BBCs. Yeah. Aside radio. from beating up the hippies, there was just a general kind of like, huh, weird from, you know, yeah. people in yeah. America about we'll like, let the them San do Francisco their thing, scene. As long as they yeah. stay in San Francisco. Yeah, basically. You know? Yeah. 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 Don't show up to Chicago next year. <laughs> Fuck no. Um, so, yeah, so this was kind of, yeah, in response to their reputation. And apparently, so the News of the World, the same newspaper that narked on Brian Jones for having his big brick of hashish or whatever. Yeah. The guy who, like, <laughs> talked to him in the bar. Um, the News of the World wrote about Pink Floyd um, and said that they were, you know, purposefully performing music to illustrate LSD experiences, which is a fantastic ser- uh, sentence. Um, but according to people who knew the band Sid was really the only known LSD user. Um, hmm. So the rest of the band was like just enjoying playing, you know, crazy loud funky music. Uh, and so like, obviously there was some LSD influence, but not it's as much not as like they think. were all tripping while they were playing or, you know, yeah. whatever. 
So, and to further court controversy, their first single released on EMI was banned by some radio stations. Uh, so we can listen to a little bit of Arnold Lane now, their first single. Um, the lyrics are about Arnold Lane, uh, a fictional person, but he's supposed to be a cross-dresser. So it got banned oh. by some radio stations. Uh, but apparently EMI got retailers to fudge the numbers, so the single went up to number 20 anyway, which is <laughs> fantastic. That is pretty good. Absolutely great. And also just weird that it's like, why do they care? Like, I forget exactly which band. Maybe Big Brother. Like, they're fr- like a lot of first singles just don't do well. And they're like, okay, well, we'll keep, you know, we'll keep releasing them. We'll keep trying. Like, The Doors, I feel like, had some singles that really didn't do yeah. well early in their career. Um, And so it's really funny that EMI was, like, so bought in on this band. It's really odd, actually. Um, Funny story about just classic rock in general. Um, the song, uh, take a walk on the wild side was also banned for the same reason. Cause it was about cross dressers. Nice. However, the song Lola was not banned for that no. reason. It was banned because they said the Coca-Cola, the brand name Coca-Cola. So then he went and re-recorded it as cherry cola and then it was fine to play on the airwaves. Hell yeah. Cause they didn't, I guess, understand the crypticness of that song. No, no. Well, Arnold Lane's pretty... It's pretty upfront. <laughs> yeah. The first lyric. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what a strange hobby is. Uh-huh. No, interesting. I will say this is accompanied by a, a music video that was filmed at the time, which to me, this is maybe a little bit cheating but a lot of the imagery in the music video is very pink floydy from the 70s surprisingly yeah. huh yeah um see so i was telling peter this earlier we um i was not sure what album we were supposed to listen to turns out i did listen to the right album but i also listened to the album relics which this yeah. is uh the first song on and I, my first thought was, my God, did they sound a lot like, um, uh, like Manfred Mann. Yeah, this song's pretty bad, I have to say. I don't, I don't like it very much. And, you I mean, I guess I'll give you some, some preview context. I'm going to say pretty good things about the album, but this is a really, this is a weak first single compared to what the album is, I think. However, I'm going to say something that will probably carry throughout the bass on it. Very good. Yeah, it is. Yeah, this is like a Manfred Mann outtake. Like, I just yeah. don't like it very much at yeah. all. So, um, we can get to now their second single, which is actually a decent hit. It went to number six, and it's also a pretty decent... Like, this song is probably their biggest hit of their early years. It shows up on a lot of compilation albums and best ofs. See Emily play. Which, again, the music video for this one is hilarious because it's all of them just like running around in a park dressed up weird. But it's very home video-esque and there's just cars like driving by and stopping behind them. And it really just like puts you in the moment of like these weirdo kids running around in a park being filmed and you driving by and just being like, what the fuck now? Like YouTube circa 2006. Yeah, you know? it's it's pretty bad. 
There's a cover of this song. I think. Maybe I'm wrong. I've never been a huge CMLA Play fan. This one has never clicked with me exactly. I like it a lot more than Arnold Lane, but it's not fantastic. I don't know. I don't really understand why it's such a big hit, I will say. Once again, it just sounds like bad Manfred Mann. Like, yeah. Well, and that was a lot of what the Manfred Mann men talked about on their show. Um, was just how much Pink Floyd was kind of a cheap knockoff of them in the early days. I, it's also crazy how, like, at the time in the 60s, a lot of British bands were, like, not necessarily trying to sound American when they sang, but they absolutely did. They don't give a fuck. They are, oh, no. like, leaning into their Britishness. When we get to the album, I will give you yeah. Shelby's review, which incorporates that. It's... It's pretty good. That's, I would love to hear it. Uh, so I just shared with you a link to a video that I want to talk about. Do you want me to pull this up so we can get the sound for it? Yes. So go to like 550. So this okay. is an appearance they did on this British, uh, I forget what it was called. It's like top of the week or something. This British show where they played some songs and then are interviewed. And the interview is look really... Look of the week. Yeah, look of the week. It's really interesting, actually. Or actually, go to like... Go to one minute in, because I think there's a little intro, and then there's a bunch of music, and then 5.50. Hans Clemmerman or some shit. Proportionately, they are boring. My <laughs> second point is that they are terribly loud. You couldn't quite hear that because, of course, from your sets, it isn't as loud as it is here in the studio and as it was in the festival hall in the Queen Elizabeth Hall on Friday. Oh. I will ask them about that when we come to talk. My third point is that perhaps I'm a little bit too much of a musician to fully appreciate them. Such and a burn. I get roasted. Yeah. Four. They have an audience, and people who have an audience ought to be heard. Perhaps it's my fault that I don't appreciate it. Wow. Still kind of that's a backhanded exactly compliment. That's exactly my review. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then 550. Yeah, that's us talking about Amy Winehouse's first album. <laughs> well, we do love music, and other people love this music, so we have to imagine there's a good reason. But, it must be good, yeah. but I don't know. So, and then they play for a while, and then they get interviewed. Roger Waters and Sid Barrett get interviewed by this guy, and it's pretty interesting. Let me turn to Roger. I want to ask one fundamental question, <laughs> of which I'll tell Why do you, you suck so hard? Aware, <laughs> the significance of it, because they didn't hear all of it. Why has it all got to be so terribly loud? <laughs> for me, frankly, it's too loud. I just can't. I love that he keeps calling it terribly loud. Uh -huh. project, it's a really faster. funny mixture of so, Britishisms uh, and then his weird, like, German that. accent. It's so, yeah. really well, great. I guess it has to be, but, I mean, that's the way we like it. And, uh, that's we the way we like it, darling. I guess it could be one of the reasons why it is loud. I mean, it doesn't They're sound so polite. Everything yeah, Roger says I think should end in darling. And then he should like flip his hair. He's very kind of a fat to me. It's he's yeah. funny. I accept that you like it. What I'm saying is that if one 
gets immune to this kind of sound, one may find it difficult to appreciate softer types of sound. Sid, yes, no? I don't think that's so. No. Uh, <laughs> I mean, everybody listens. We don't need it very loud to be able to hear it, and some of it is very quiet, in fact. Right. I, I th personally, I like quiet music. Just, just oh, my God. The guy just gave a look like, bitch. <laughs> yeah. Some of it's quiet. Yeah. No. We play in large halls and things where, where obviously volume is necessary. And when people dance, they like uh, volume, you know, comes in uh, on its own. But uh, Well, that's interesting. You see, when people dance, you did start, if I'm not mistaken, as a group which accompanied dancing. Is that it? Yeah, you could say that. And how did you turn into a concertizing group, if I may use the American term? Well, we've only done two concerts, in yes. fact, because the, the main scene with uh, pop music, which I guess is what we are at yes. the moment, is that uh, you play gigs around ballrooms and dance halls and this sort of scene, because that's how it works at the moment. But uh, we felt that there was no real reason, you know, why we shouldn't do a, an organized concert in a large hall where people came and sat and actually listened to what we do. Because uh, dance halls, generally speaking, are, are not very good places to this guy hates to the them. music. Most yes. people come along and he keeps rolling his eyes. <laughs> for most of them, has been, over the past few years anyway, just a sort of background noise that they can jig about to in certain sort of, you know. Were those two concerts successful? Yes, yes I think so. But us, I mean, when we play, I think that, uh, uh, the way the acts developed in the last six months has been influenced rather a lot by the fact that we've played in ballrooms yes. necessarily because, you know, th this is obviously the first market. Have but I think at concerts have given us a chance to realise that maybe the music we play isn't directed at dancing necessarily like normal pop groups um, have been in the past. Have you encountered any hostility? <laughs> uh, Such a great question. Well, yes, we have, but... I mean, I guess there's been quite a lot of hostility going on in odd places in the country. I mean, the only hostility we've actually seen, of course, is that which has hit the national press and things. The sort of, uh, Their accents are so posh, which I guess I should have expected from architecture school. Do you, in your turn, feel yeah. aggressive toward your audiences? No, not at all. <laughs> in spite of all the loud loudness, you don't. No, not at all. He's <laughs> so obsessed with how loud it is. I know. You know, who dislike it. No, there's no shock treatment intended. No, certainly not. You know, some people think that we deliberately try and um, sort of uh, shock. shock the audience and make them, you know, by the volume and keep them quiet sort of thing. Yeah. But this isn't so. Well, there it is. I yeah. think you can pass your verdict. Pretty fascinating. And also just gives us, at least in London, a really interesting look that I don't really think we covered much with the Stones. Because they started really in this blues yeah. scene that was very kind of focused. And, yeah, this look between, like, they're very distinct about the difference between playing shows and playing actual concerts where people are actually there yeah. to listen to them as opposed to just playing a bar where people are milling around and maybe listening. That is very, very interesting that there is, uh -huh. like, such a distinction that they have to make. Yeah. And, and then it matters like, to them, too. Like, to them, it's, you know, which makes sense, yeah. obviously. But it's just an interesting thing that I was kind of thinking when they're playing, you know, whatever UFO club, it's still like Pink Floyd's playing tonight. This is a big deal. Pink Floyd fans are going to turn out. And no, it's like there's maybe 20 or 30 people actually listening, but everyone else is still just there to drink and stuff. And so they're to jig around. As yeah, exactly. Said. To party. And um, so they're still not like being heard as as they want to. It's so interesting to me that he's so obsessed with like it's it's so loud. 
It's because so loud. like this is 1967. There's been louder music before this. Yeah. You well, know? I mean, not that they're the loudest band to ever exist, but the loudness thing will come up again. So they were apparently very loud. Okay. They preferred playing loud to a point where multiple people noticed that that was a distinct thing. Okay. So, also around this time, part of their press coming out of EMI, I sent you the link in the chat. Uh, if you scroll down on this page a little ways, it's like a full picture scan of a, a newspaper or a magazine, probably. Oh, yeah. Okay. A fantastically 1960s thing to do, which is they have a picture of the band, and then they just have a bunch of factoids about them that I assume yeah. they filled out. And I think this came up when with the Rolling Stone studs where they filled out kind of this fact sheet and the doors. They would fill out fact yeah. sheets when they got brought on because Jim Morrison said he didn't have parents and then Keith Richards wrote his name wrong and so then it kept there. It stayed wrong for like the first few records. No, he wrote his name right. And they fucked it up. Yeah, they okay. fucked it up the few, first yeah. few records. So like, it's just fascinating because they give real name, birth date, birthplace, um, personal points, which is their height and hair color and eye color, parents' is- names, sibling names, present home, they're what just instruments they play. These fuckers. I know where they went to school, what their musical education is, the age they entered show business, their first public appearance, uh, which is really funny. Rick Wright says my first bath, <laughs> uh, first professional appearance, which is a weird distinction to make. Biggest break in career, TV debut, which is weird that it's different for them. Yeah, and they put all of them put look of the week except for except Nick for Nick Mason put a different thing. I don't know why. Yeah. yeah. London theater dates, like, and it's all the same because they're in a band together. So, but then we get to the good stuff. So, biggest yeah. influence on my career. Can't think of, uh, so in order, this is Rick Wright, then Nick, then Roger, then Sid. So, Rick says, can't think of anything, probably everything. Nick says, fear and rum. Roger and Sid don't answer. <laughs> yeah. I think favorite food is a good one. I don't yeah. have one, Rick Wright says. Yeah. Avocado, pears, cordon bleu. Yeah, Nick Mason is real fancy. Roger Waters, cream donuts. Hell yeah. Yeah. And then Sid Barrett says everything. Everything. The opposite of Rick Wright. Favorite color is funny, too, because Rick says white, the worst answer of all time. Yeah. Nick says the spectrum, the second worst answer of all time. I can't even read Roger Waters. The scan, it's like on a full. It says mutt. Yeah, is that some weird Britishism for brown or something? And then Sid just doesn't have one. He answered, I, think it's funny. I don't have one. I think it's so funny how... I have no idea what, no. what Roger Waters says. I think it's so funny how often Sid Barrett didn't answer, it seems. Yes. Like, they just put lines in a lot of them. And then his answers to some of them are, I don't have one. But they still printed that. Like, they could have just put another line. Yeah. Um, this is like well, a fucking and that'll seventh be, grade yearbook, which is Yeah, hilarious. that'll get us to Sid Barrett. Uh, his problems earlier or later on with him just not answering half the questions. <laughs> Favorite drink, uh, Rick's is gin with anything. See, like I wish we could find this for every band we've covered. This is awesome. Rick's is gin with anything. Nick Mason says see biggest influence where he put rum. Roger Waters is gin as well, and then Sid's is Campari and soda, which is a strange drink, but all right. That is, yeah, very strange. Favorite singer, uh, John Lennon says Rick. Nick says Mosey Allen. I don't know who that is. Roger Waters says Billy Holiday, and Sid says too many to list. 
Uh, All of his answers are really non-answers. Yeah. Favorite band and instrumentalist is interesting because Rick lists all jazz people. Nick lists some jazz and then Cream and the Beatles and then Ginger Baker and then Thelonious Monk. And then favorite composers, Rick, again, goes all classical. Not again, but like he went all jazz on the last one, then all classical on this one. And then Nick says, again, Thelonious Monk and then Lennon and McCartney. Favorite groups, they all say the Beatles, of course, basically. Obviously. Um, And then... Except for Sid Barrett, who did not answer. Yeah, Sid Barrett didn't answer, but both Rick and Roger say Cream and the Hen- and Hendrix. And then Soft Machine for both Nick and Rick, which I do not know that name. We should maybe look up Soft Machine. And then the best part in everything in this is miscellaneous dislikes and miscellaneous likes. Yeah. Okay, so Rick's miscellaneous dislikes are drunks, crowded pubs, violence, and difficult situations. <laughs> I'm with you there, Rick. I hate those difficult situations. Yeah. Ugh. Nick's is nasty people, terrifying experiences, being tortured. <laughs> and then Rogers is hotel meals, Alice Bacon. I don't know what that is. Um, the fuzz and lemon peel. I don't know what that is. The fuzz is a great answer. Yeah. And then miscellaneous likes. Rick says freedom, silence, Greek islands, sun, beautiful girls. Ah. Yeah. Uh, and then Roger says pussy cats, and then they have yeah. pets, and all of them have pets. Rick has a Great Dane. Nick has a parrot called Bicycle, and then Roger has two cats, and Sid has a two, cat. Two half Siamese cats. That's right. So together, one Siamese cat. Yeah. <laughs> so pretty fucking fascinating and hilarious. That is a strange thing. I know, man. Um, so. Around or after this in 1967, they started recording their first album and went in since they were signed to EMI, went into Abbey Road, baby. Yeah, we've talked about that before. Yeah. Um, And so their engineer. So they went in to record their first album. Their engineers were totally on board with Pink Floyd, which is cool. They got a couple guys who are really open to experimental recording. Um, They use double tracking on all the instruments used a lot of reverb and echo. Uh, yeah. Apparently, Sid was known for singing really quietly live, so they set up an isolation booth for him to sing all of his vocal parts into um, and, like, really pulled out the stops to make these guys, like, their kind of crazy live sound and all of their Try to musical... Yeah, all their musical kind of craziness work live. Although, their engineer apparently spent a lot of time trying to get them to... T- to uh, to trim down the super long jams. So the two jams that make it onto the album are apparently very trimmed down. So anyway. Shocking. Yeah. Uh, So the sessions went generally well. Nick Mason remembers them being totally fine in his biography, but their producer uh, apparently said that Sid was pretty unresponsive. Um, So he tried to connect with them musically by, he played piano. So he would come in and jam with them in the studio to kind of like figure out what their vibe was and, you know, get on the same level. But apparently Sid just wouldn't participate. And eventually he realized he was just wasting his time with Sid. Um, he wouldn't take any of his feedback and apparently started to take more and more LSD as the sessions went on. Hmm. So uh, some other kind of recording notes. Uh, a couple of the songs, which we'll get to when we go track by track, uh, were done in one take, impressively. Um, although, Isn't weirdly... Impressive. In 
historically, I feel like most of the bands we've talked about, when they do one take band uh, songs, basically the Doors and the Stones, it's their jams and Hendrix. Yeah. For them, the jams they did the most takes on, and the single, the ones they did in just one take, were like the short poppy songs. So that kind of makes sense to me with Pink Floyd, where yeah. they're like, they're I mean, a lot they more them focused. In club for so long, they can. Yeah you know, do a song like that. But then their jams, I bet they're like, oh, we weren't really feeling that middle part. Yeah, you know? yeah, probably. Um, also, one day while they were in the studio, they were invited to watch the Beatles record Lovely Rita. Ooh, Meter Maid. Exactly. They're also, this is where the volume comes back in. Apparently, one of the engineers distinctly remembers walking in while they were doing a take of Interstellar Overdrive and being, like, just totally blown away by how loud they were playing in the studio. So, huh. Okay. Once again, someone's totally taken aback by how loud they are. Uh, so, so funny to me. Yeah. So the album title came from Sid Barrett. Um, he was inspired by a book, The Wind in the Willows, which if people don't know, is a old kid's book about animals. About anthropomorphic animals. Yeah, which what other troubled 60s singer-songwriter did we talk about who was also obsessed with old children's literature about anthropomorphic? I don't remember. I don't remember that, where this happened before, but it's happened before. I, and I know also it. was super into LSD. I know, and I also know. left the band early. I don't know. Just it, it has, I'd swear this is really familiar. Sounds strange. Yeah. So, but apparently one of the sections in that book, they come across the character Pan, uh, the, you know, god or demigod. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, who plays his pan pipes at dawn, and so hence the piper at the gates of dawn. Um, Wind in the Willows is the most boring fucking book in the world, by the oh, way. Oh, I loved it when I was a kid, but I haven't read it in probably 15 years. I, I, like, I had a camp counselor a who read it to us yeah. to make us fall asleep, and it fucking <laughs> Oh, yeah, it worked. Nice. Uh, so the cover, uh, which is pretty cool, it's the four of them, kind of just a regular studio shot, but then it's all psychedelic uh, with their faces and heads like It seems like, blown so out. Rolling Stones-y to me. It does kind of look like an early yeah. Stones cover. It was shot by a photographer named Vic Singh, who used a prism lens, which was apparently given to him Ooh. by George Harrison. He was ah. friends with George Harrison, so... Um, he shot them with George the Harrison just has all the equipment that everybody else needs. I know. He's right? like, Oh, you need to borrow my fucking eight track and yeah. my home studio. Great. Lens. You yeah. need to borrow my prism lens. All right. Uh, so yeah, he, he borrowed the lens and then told the band to show up in the brightest clothes they could find for the cover. Although it's not a particularly hmm. crazy. No, it would have, it would have been better. Roger didn't do very well with, if they had the shot it on clothes. a darker background, it would have worked. But they shot it on like it's like kind of a brick colored background, and yeah. it's it so it kind of washes out the bright clothes. It doesn't really work. Um, so uh, last thing before we get to the track by track, well, a couple things before we get to the track by track. Um, I'm gonna do just a little bit, and then we'll get into more of it next episode. But just a little bit of what happens after the album is released. And then mm. we're going to do, we're not quite to the time of having a Rolling Stone review, but we do have a short little British uh, newspaper review. Nice. So after the album comes out, uh, they're doing pretty well. They're pretty popular. Uh, their manager gets them to the States. They do some TV appearances. Um, but Sid is starting to get more and more inconsistent in his behavior he uh, gets like kind of lackadaisical during some of the shows where back in the days when you're lip syncing, he just like isn't lip syncing or isn't pretending to play. He doesn't interview well with a couple people where he's just really muttery or giving really like one word answers. 
um, the rest of the band starting to get nervous about this inconsistency. Like he's barely showing up for shows or he's showing up for shows, but is just standing on stage without doing anything while the rest of them are playing. Uh, at a certain point, they get they bundle him into a car and try and take him to a doctor, but he refuses to get out of the car to even go see the doctor. He does agree to go on this trip to Spain with a doctor that they know to like get some rest in the sun and relaxation time, but then he comes back and still is acting the same. Hmm. Uh, so after their U.S. Uh, trip, they come back to England and they tour with Jimi Hendrix, which is really big for them, but... Sid gets worse and worse and even doesn't show up at one show. And they use the guitar player from the opening band instead of Sid, which is a crazy call up to get. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually, and this will lead into where we'll get to our next uh, episode. They add another guitar player to cover for Sid in case he doesn't show or in case he's off that night. A guy named David Gilmore. Yeah. Remember earlier when you were like, PJ doesn't sound like he knows any of those names. That one I know. That one I know. Nope. So, we'll take a quick break, come back with our record mirror review, and go track by track through The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. And welcome back to the Pink Floyd Fellows, where we're talking the Piper at the Gates of Dawn. You heard a little bit, a little preview of it there during the break. Uh, So, before we get to the track by track, our patented track by track, we have, I don't think we have a song for this yet. That's okay. We'll we'll come up with one at some point. But we have uh, a little bit of a not Rolling Stone review. Uh, It's from Record Mirror. So I'll just read the whole thing. Sid Barrett penned all of the songs on this album with little help from the rest of the group. Kind of true, but three songs aren't credited to him. Anyway, the psychedelic image of the group really comes to life record-wise on this LP, which is a fine showcase for both their talent and the recording technique. Plenty of mind-blowing sound, both blatant and subtle here, and the whole thing is extremely well-performed. So there we go. Did Sid Barrett write that? Yeah, I think so. So, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn came out in August of 1967. Uh, The album went to number six in the UK. Pretty good. Uh, But only number 131 in the US. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Uh, Flaming was the only single released from this album. It was only released in the US, and it did not chart. So, yeah, yeah, none of that seems right. So, Or all that seems correct, but I don't know why EMI decided to do it. Actually, I think there was a weird thing where they released it because it was the 60s on a different company, you know, in the U.S., so they just made their own decisions. So, yeah, anyway. Uh, And in true 60s U.S. and U.K. fashion, there's two different versions for the U.K. and U.S. Uh, The U.K. versions leave off the hit single. The U.S. version leads with CMLE play, of course. Oh, cool. Yeah. So the U.K. version is a better album then? Yeah, yeah. UK version is a better album. Mostly because it's the album they actually wanted to make, you know, but anyway. So yeah, all the songs are written by Sid Barrett, except the two instrumentals are credited to the band, and Take Up Thy 
blah, blah, blah. and take up thy stethoscope. Jesus Christ. I didn't and know I couldn't say the word. Take up thy stethoscope and walk. Yeah, I didn't know I couldn't say that word until just now, uh, which Roger Waters wrote, although he does not sing, interestingly, even though he sings a lot of songs later in their career. Uh, mm-hmm. So I kind of thought he might have sung that one because it does sound a little bit different than yeah. the other songs. But You know what it is? It's thy stethoscope. Take it's up thy stethoscope. It's a lot I, of yeah, ste- plosives. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so let's go ahead and get into it. The very first song, Astronomy Domine. Leading on. I just want to be one of them Catholic songs. Uh, this song absolutely slaps as an album opener, by the way. So, Roger's playing the bass, right? Yep. We haven't said anything in a long time. I apologize. Um, <laughs> I'm I just feel like that might it. happen a lot on this show. Do I like it? Not really. Yeah. It's pretty formless, I have to say. Like, this album, it, it took a while for me because they do not repeat sections of songs. Their style is really yeah. to move. Like, every song is A to B to C to D instead of, you know, A, B, A, B, C, A. Um, they're great so, musicians. Yeah, I can say that. Yeah. So that makes like a lot of the songs, especially the jams, kind of tough because really only one of the jams or jammy songs do they come back to the original musical like uh, note. And so it's definitely not catchy stuff. This kind of feels like psychedelic music for like you know real psychedelic people, a little bit. Yeah. Which is like, it's kind of the same uh, issue I had with uh, On Her Majesty's yeah, well, Secret Devil or whatever the fuck it was. I, was. I definitely thought of that album a lot, and mostly because I think that album's a lot worse than this one in its psychedelicness. Um, and I These thought guys would... definitely delved way more into the psychedelic yeah. than... Well, and I thought I you'd mean, have similar problems with each album, too. Nick Mason. Yeah. Killing it. He's a good drummer. Yeah. Uh, 
I guess they come back to the same thing. I will. I do want to stick through this whole song Halloween? just because I think the transition into Lucifer Sam is really great. I feel like there's not going to be a lot of times in Pink Floyd's catalog that we can skip to the next song. <laughs> I think there's no. They have a lot of like ten minute songs. <laughs> I no, but I think all of them transition into one another. Oh, I got you. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't like the. Vo- I don't like this vocal part. Yeah. The chanting vocals I don't love either. I. I Which I I, I didn't realize the domine part in the title i kind of get it now but that doesn't make it good and then lucifer sam holy shit man i feel like i could write an essay about how great this song is to take yeah to take basically like the johnny gun theme and psychedelic guys it like it's Peter a spy Gunn. theme, Peter Gunn. Thank you. <laughs> to like take a it's spy because it's your name and you forgot. I know. To take like a spy theme riff, and then make it crazy and psychedelic, and then also about the devil, and then also like all of it is just fantastic, and then also make it insanely catchy with some great bass lines in the background. You know, this doesn't sound like '67 to me though. This sounds like. 64 65 yeah the recording on this album is a little all over the place sometimes it sounds really dated just the recording style i think my guess is that since they tried to be so experimental and do so much echo and all that they maybe gave up a little bit of the advancement of like making it sound super polished tone that's my guess yeah yeah. because i agree it does sound rougher but then the stuff, when they get into like kind of the stereo craziness of some later songs, it's really impressive for the time. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. This song specifically, I mean, like, it also, like, if it was recorded better, it could sound like a spooky, like, horror song from the 90s, you know? This guitar solo is really great and just weird, too. Like, I. People it's treat Sid Barrett like they treat Brian Jones, where they're like the greatest musician who never got to, you know, see out their talent kind of thing. And I, I definitely don't fully agree, just like with Brian Jones. But there's moments like on this song where I'm like, oh yeah, Sid Barrett was incredible. Like Lucifer Sam is an incredible song with incredible guitar playing and like yeah, I'm into it. We could go to Matilda Mother, I think. I like this for Sam overall. Our peek into uh, the medieval rock that the Rolling Stones dabbled in during their psychedelic time, too. See, like, they're starting a really interesting kind of catchy song, and then they just get off the... They yeah. just They go off the path, and it doesn't work for me on this one. I like this part, but... 
see, I, I agree where it's like, I, but my thought is it's almost catchy, and then they ruin it. Yeah. No, and I I'm agree. Like, it's a, like, this part is catchy to me. And then see, I don't they think, hit the arpeggiated part. See, I, I think this part is almost something, mm. but not quite there. And then they hit the arpeggiated part, and I'm like, no. Uh... It's almost like it's almost a song, you know. I do love this is the first really good example. The organ's sick on here. This is the first really good example though of there is a lot of what would you call it? Like just making mouth noises on this album? Like someone's just straight up doing like cymbal noises with their mouth in this song. Yeah, and it comes up in the next song or in track five. It comes up later. They do it There's a lot a on this album, it. and it's, I don't know that I've really ever heard it happen that often in rock music, and definitely never over a full album like this. It's really strange. Yeah, they're weird guys. Yeah. Let's get to Flaming, the apparently lead single. Yeah, bizarre. I mean, it's not a uh, terrible song, but it's the weirdest, it's a very weird choice for a single. Yeah, I didn't like that last song. There's a little more. Like me picturing what they look like based off of the music so far, it's like they're weird little British goblins that like... So I listened to this. Oh, go ahead. Just, I listened to this album one of the times this last week with Shelby in the car. And starting about this song and continuing through Bike, the final track, she just kept getting more and more mad at like, I could just do this. I can just sing in a shitty British accent about random garbage. Right? Like, there's no tune. There's no consistency to the lyrics. It's just like, and then I had a buggy and a unicorn. And then I went to the grass and sat in the park. She's like, this is just, anyone can do this. And I'm like, I kind of agree with you. (laughs) My my thought is very funny paired with that because I was thinking they must be like the 1960s version of fucking Vampire Weekend where it's like, (laughs) Just say some weird shit in like a yeah. funny voice. Just be like Oxford shirt and a weird cocktail. I was at yeah. a party in a mansard roof house. Yeah. Yeah. Also, this just sounds like somebody's clicking a pen and I fucking hate it. I kind of love all the weird noises on this album, but I, I can understand them. it being obnoxious. Let's go ahead and get to track five. Boy, what's your guess on how to pronounce this? Power touch. I kept reading it as power touch and then realized that it's not. Pow. R talk H. So apparently, talk H was code for TH, which represented Talbot House, which is like a British club thing, like kind of the YMCA, it looks like maybe. Huh. So. Uh. I'm so confused. None of their examples make any sense. I mean, if Shelby couldn't make that last song, she could for sure make no. this song. 
In this song, they say Sid Barrett displays an early example of beatboxing. Oh, is that what they're calling the I think that's what they're... Sounds. Yeah, I think so. Which, I mean, yeah, that's kind of the closest it gets, especially when he's doing drum sounds, but... Um, this is a really great song, mostly just for the weirdness of having a little, a like jazz jam in the middle of a very strange psychedelic album. I like the piano part. I hate yeah. everything else. Oh, I really like this song. I just think it's a really great palate cleanser and also made me laugh out loud the first time it came on. Cause it was so weird and psychedelic and then just like, and then we're going to have a jazz solo now. It's so fantastic. I, I think it's really funny. Peter, I've said it once and I'm going to say it again. I don't think I get psychedelic music. <laughs> Except Jimi Hendrix. I love that shit. You just got to be open to whatever's happening, which in this, it's we're going from flaming to a jazz piano solo. Followed by some scatting slash beatboxing. I think you hate, you know that my least favorite thing on an album is inconsistency. Yeah, well. <laughs> Let's go ahead and get to take up thy stethoscope and walk. This also sounds like 1973 Beach Boys. Huh. Yeah, a little bit. Um, this song fucking slaps. And again, like the weird mouth noise. It, it's so strange on every song. This one is not bad. It, it reminded me of like a spooky like 70s punk band. You're right, that beginning part and then into here does sound like yeah. early punk, yeah. And, and then, then just like playing noise guitar, on the guitar yeah. instead of like an actual chord, really, yeah. And then it gets into, I think, a pretty good instrumental break. I like this part. Um, and then I think it's worth listening to because it returns to almost the same melody but in like a completely different key, but without the song actually changing key. It's really, really weird, but I kind of like it. The more I listened to it, the more I liked it. Now this sounds a little white stripesy. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And then just layering in the random like, in the background. <laughs> it's it's really great. I don't know. I think I'm guessing it's Sid Barrett who's doing all that, given that his, you know, reputation. It'd be funny if it was the drummer. For being a weirdo. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, they counted as percussion. Yeah. So Rick Wright during this little jam I don't, we'll get I into. I hate this guitar part. I hate the tone, yeah. I hate everything about it so rick wright plays two different organs two different pianos a harmonium a celesta cello oh a third organ a vibraphone cello. a pianet the violin and also some percussion on this album so he is definitely their brian jones their yeah. brian wilson their guy who can do a little bit of everything their Thank john God paul they were jones heavy road you know yeah they wouldn't have had access to all of these things. yeah right I feel like every single solo I've heard, be it from an organ, a piano, a guitar, anything, 
it always starts as something and then it evolves into like just noise. Yeah. The song makes me anxious. Speaking of punk, like this drumming is pretty. I don't know, man. It's yeah. it's heavy. I really like take up thy stethoscope and walk. That's got some good shit. Oh fuck! Right, so starting side two, Interstellar Overdrive, which is not only is it a jam, it's a jam. This, this guitar song. riff is one of the great guitar riffs, man. It's I think fantastic. this is the one that I towards the end I absolutely cannot stand. Oh yeah, it's a lot of noise for a long time. I I will say. It is tuneless, it is formless, it is just weird noise. I somehow do not get sick of this song, even though it's nine and a half minutes long. If they, if I went to a show and the band started playing this, I'd throw a beer at them. Well, I not would. right now. This would be in sick. In a mean way. This part you would love. It would just be like two minutes in that you'd start hating it. Yeah, if it was this. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, because this yet. part's awesome, and then the bass line, once they start the jam, is really sick, too. Roger Waters? This bass line. Great all the way through. And like even this part's pretty bomb and then it gets really noisy. You know, I'm going to spoil something here. I don't love this album, but the bass all the way through, I'm like, the bass is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is good. I'm just going to say no spoilers for later in their run, but definitely take Roger Waters' side the entire time. Just oh, be will. on, just be on his side, through the whole the whole history of the band, throughout their journey. I don't know. This David Gilmore fella seems pretty promising. Nah, he's an idiot. He kind of he kind of just like railroads everybody later on. Gets way too political. Is really obnoxious. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, you won't like him later on. Ah, oh, that sounds bad. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then it's just music until they repeat that opening riff like once that before the end is? of the song. <laughs> yeah. Got him. I'm like that fucking German dude. I. We definitely don't have to listen to this whole song, but I will just say I think it's really well done. But... No, we have to listen to it because there's a part at the end that I want to talk about. Oh, okay. Well, we can skip if you want then, because we're not. I don't know where it's at. I don't write it seven down. minutes. Like, you could get why they would play this at a dance hall. I hate... This is... It's not even at the end that I hate it. I hate this noise Oh, I so really much. love this noise. <laughs> I think it's really awesome. It made me want to kill myself. It was like that scene in A Clockwork yeah. Orange where they're holding his eyes open and they're playing mm. classical music, and then he's in the bath later and he's freaking out. That's what this noise makes me want to do. I, it makes me want to commit heinous acts of violence. Yeah, yeah. And you can blame it on Pink Floyd. You can sue them just like you sued My Chemical Romance. <laughs> yeah. Whenever they do use the like overdriven fuzz box guitar on this song, it is a pretty perfect distorted guitar tone, though, I will say. To my mind.
Okay, we can skip this now. <laughs> it's just, it's this for the next five minutes. The All right, gnome. now we're to the gnome, which Shelby was still making fun of the lyrics at this point, although she was not yet laughing out loud at the ridiculousness of them. To me, this sounds like they watched Yellow Submarine and they were like, we could do that. Yeah, that seems that seems doable, right? Yeah. Um, all that being said, I really like this song. <laughs> Good for you. Ah, it's pleasant. It's fun. I mean, Shelby's... I wish I had thought of what Shelby said because she's absolutely right. Where it's yeah. like, they're just British guys saying stuff. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous, but very fun. And I don't really like the melody either. Like, if it had a catchy melody and they were saying this dumb bullshit, I might be into it, a la Yellow Submarine. But I think this song's catchy. And this is where the Celeste comes in. That's beautiful. hate the whispers oh see i like i don't know man i think it's i it's great because it's so it's a song about a gnome and then you decide to do creepy whispers in the background it's hilarious yeah isn't it crazy that they wrote the song about george harrison (laughs) uh let's get to chapter 24 so for me this song kind of ruins the the back half of this album is pretty perfect except i think chapter 24 sucks pretty perfect yeah this song is Yikes. really boring, though. Although the bass line's fantastic. The bass line is very good. Yeah, it's a real Paul McCartney bass line, which is the highest praise I can think of. I got an argument with my old boss one time because he played the bass, and he hadn't played in a few years. And I was like, Paul McCartney is one of the greatest bassists. And he was like, I could learn all of his bass lines in a day. And I was nice. like do it. I don't think you... Yeah, <laughs> fucking go do it. I don't think you could. Oh, and I did forget to point out also a great bass moment on Interstellar Overdrive is at the very beginning Roger's just playing like that guitar riff with Sid, which is really great. and makes it even heavier at the beginning there. Uh, we could move on to the Scarecrow. Thank you. Which is also a fantastic song. And more weird mouth noises. Do you think they thought they were tricking people? Yes, I do. It's also great that they were into Wizard of Oz this early. I didn't realize. Yeah. Until people noticed it exactly yeah they're like it's from day one man uh i think this is the song where shelby yelled oh come on now (laughs) when they started singing like there's really no standard for these lyrics huh shelby's on to something a gnome a scarecrow just literally whatever the fuck you want in a british accent Well, and it's like that same thing, like I said, with fucking Vampire Weekend, where it's like, they're just saying dumb shit and then playing like a weird keyboard riff and then saying more weird shit. I do really love the percussion, though, on this. The like, kind of sounds like someone's like doing the 
slappy wooden thing against their leg, like whatever Vibrophone. that thing's called. Sure, yeah. Oh no, I, vibra slap. I'm sorry. Yeah, I really, I really like the percussion here, and then the like clean electric guitar on top. It's, I really, I like this song quite a bit. It's so thin. Everything's so thin. It's like a very production. trebly album for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now it's starting to get interesting mm-hmm. with the layering, but it doesn't last long. <laughs> Nothing on this album lasts long. Except Interstellar Overdrive. Nine and a half minutes, baby. Yeah. I think Interstellar Overdrive is when I was like driving and I checked my phone to be like, how much fucking longer in this thing? All right, and now we get to Bike. What I think is the... Never mind. I love this song, though. Once again, this kind of plays into Shelby's theory. Yeah, I will say I more about these lyrics as we go. Look though. at my little basket. I love the like slide whistle in the back kind of sound, and then the crazy echoey drums, which are really not ahead of their time, but is very like 1960s Beach Boys. Okay, is that a harpsichord or whatever that is? I, I love think it's that. just the tack piano, maybe. Um, it's good. It's really great. Yeah, I love the piano here. So this song to me actually works the best in terms of Sid's weird psychedelic vocals. Mostly because it's actually tied together with a consistent chorus, which helps. Um, where the you're the kind of girl that fits into my world, I'll give you anything. Where I, the Vampire Weekend comparison is actually kind of apt, <laughs> surprisingly. Yeah, um, not surprisingly. I'm a smart man. No, yeah, that's true. It's just I never would have thought of that, and so I'm impressed at that draw. But you're right. But it's very much, it, it definitely ties you into, it, first of all, it's the only song on here with lyrics that actually are tied to the real world at all. So they're, they're actually cohesive. somewhat meaningful and yeah. they're cohesive. But it also at least gives you like a little bit of glimpse into like maybe Sid Barrett as a person and also his, I really like all this noise at the end too, but... Um, but him as a person and maybe just him in the real world of just as a crazy stoned out of his mind guy just being like, there's a mouse in my house with this girl I like want that. I have some cookies. Does she want that? I have a bike, but I can't give it to you because I borrowed it. Like, I think it's actually like kind of endearing and funny. And again, like actually presents a little bit of a story or a scene or a look into him as a person where none of the other songs do so i think those lyrics really work even for being ridiculous and psychedelic as well okay (laughs) is bike this long at the end i don't remember it being this long at the end we still have 30 seconds left i like this part too 
I love all the noise. See, the thing is, it's supposed to be a music album, and you keep saying, I like the noise. Noise can be music. Have you ever talked to Brian Eno, friend? No. No, I have not. Oh, okay. Don't care to. Um, All right, PJ. Well, what are your thoughts on the Piper at the Gates of Dawn? This album, to me, sounds like they recorded a high school band that lived in a cuckoo clock, but there was also construction going on outside. Um, that's what this album sounds like to me. So 10 out of 10, or um, <laughs> I'm confused. That's what I was going to say, too. So <laughs> I don't like this type yeah. of thing. And I like to think of myself as somebody who's very open to various kinds of music. And it maybe it's because I've never done drugs before. Um, I, I hated it. I yeah. hate an unstructured <laughs> album like this. What is going on? Like, write a chorus, for God's sake. <laughs> that does seem and to be a the, struggle of theirs. Uh, oh, Whether yeah. or and on like, purpose or not, I don't know. But And I know they do a similar thing later on in their career that I enjoy, but this was right. just not it for me. Like, and I can, like... I guess I can kind of see the formation of something from yeah. later on, but it's just not fully developed. And yeah. boy, did I not care for this. I tried a few times, did not take any of those times. Yeah, Not a single song I'm going to go back and listen to. Not That's, a single that one. Is wild. That is it's wild. It's not wild. Me. This music is trash. <laughs> I mean, I knew you, I kind of figured you wouldn't like it, but I didn't think you would. I thought you would see some positives, but not a not. Well, like I said, Roger Waters. Yeah, crushing it. Very good. Very good at the bass. No. Um. Right. He. Yeah. 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 Um. That's that's it. That's the only thing. And like I, it probably didn't come across in the recording. But, like, there are some bass parts where it's, like, very bassy, and I'm like, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, but overall, this ain't it, dog. This ain't it. Yeah. Well, I will say, okay, so I've heard Interstellar Overdrive before. That's the only song off this album that I'd heard. Which, So, to be fair, I had heard Interstellar Overdrive a lot before and had already liked it a lot. So it's possible I wouldn't have liked My it as much. My least favorite song on the album. I know. It's possible I wouldn't have liked it as much if this is the first time I'd heard it. But... I did already like it. I, though, also really hated this album on the first few listens. Because, like, I think the second time I listened to it was with Shelby in the car. And I was like, man, you're not wrong about anything you're saying. Like, this does kind of suck. And these lyrics are ridiculous. And then I, I had a weird, like, bunch of peaks and valleys with this album. So I really didn't like it. Finally, on probably, like, my fifth or sixth listen, I went, oh this is good. But then I just didn't listen to it for like a week for some reason. I just was not in the mood to listen to it and was like, I think I do kind of like it, but I don't want to listen to it again. And then this week, uh, I listened to it a ton until I kind of got sick of it because I got really obsessed with it and then over listened to it. So I really like it basically. And it definitely clicked for me, but it definitely took a while and was a weird one. So, and it's also interesting because Sid 
wrote almost all the songs. And even though three of the four members continue, I did see some kind of through lines to their later music in a way that was a little bit surprising just because, you know, I wouldn't think anything they were doing in 67 with a different front man would carry over to like 1975. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Spoilies. (laughs) Yeah, spoilers. They get that far. Oh, yeah. And tea leaves. Yeah. But uh, no, uh, I wasn't. No, I wasn't going to say that. Anyway. Mostly just the intro to Astronomy Domine really sounds like, except for kind of the production, basically, really sounds like that could be a Pink Floyd song from any era to me. Um, and then same with just See, a here, lot of the instrumentation. I wouldn't say none of the lyrics seem like stuff they would do later. For none sure. of the lyrics. And I, I might agree with you on instrumentation. Yeah. And maybe, no, maybe I won't. It is definitely produced differently because there are some Pink Floyd songs I can listen to and be like, a band could have come out with that last week, and I wouldn't be surprised. But this, I'm like, oh, that was recorded in the late to mid-60s. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, And so maybe that is the recording. Maybe it's instrumentation, but probably the lyrical content as well. Yeah. I do like, though, I mean, it's a really great, headphones album just because there is a lot of weird echo chamber stuff there's a lot of weird noises like the mouth noise beatbox stuff really pops i think on like a nice pair of headphones where you know again or like when he's randomly whispering the lyrics behind himself singing on the gnome all that stuff just makes it like weirder and creepier and all the strange noises kind of pop out more so i think that is really fun It's just, I think it kind of worked for me when I stopped trying to analyze what this album should be or like whether it was a good album or not. And then I just started really enjoying all the songs and don't really care. I don't know that I analyzed it so much as I listened to it. (laughs) Yeah. And I thought, you know, my job as reviewing this album is to decide whether or not it's good or bad. And I decided bad. Yeah. Yeah. See, I think, like, I just think I was, I agree that I was very, like, this album's all over the place. There's not a lot of consistency. The lyrics are weird, and I don't love them. They aren't going back to choruses. And, like, I guess kind of once I stopped focusing on that stuff and just let the music play, PJ. I just let it wash over me, man. A little bit. Like It's not LSD. that you have to focus on the <laughs> fact that there's not a chorus. You just think nothing is familiar, and they're not, it's a different song now? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is what got me to be like, oh, nothing on this album is catchy. I don't agree at all. I think Astronomy Domine has a catchy guitar riff. I think Lucifer Sam is one of the better 60s pop songs. That, like, that should have been a big 60s hit, I think. Although it being called Lucifer Sam probably kept it off the radio. And um, I think you're crazy. I think The Scarecrow's really great. I think Bike is just also fantastic. Like, Bike to me... This is a weird comparison, but I almost I feel like there's a universe in which Simon and Garfunkel sing Bike and it's a huge hit. Like it's that kind of like kind of sugary pop song that I do feel like works. Um that's a wild take. And I then think. if we're talking and then if we're talking uh cool psychedelic shit, take up thy stethoscope, interstellar overdrive, uh power apparently power talk talk H whatever. Anyway. Pete Let's yeah. just take a moment and um, just kind of sit in this moment. We're back to our roots where you really love something, yes. and I can't fucking stand it. Yes. 
okay. It's well, been a long time. It has been a long time. Yeah, we were uh, the 27 Club. I think we were the closest we ever have been in terms of our yeah. ratings. On and then stuff. Rolling Stone studs, we were pretty similar most of the time. Yeah, too. we were closer. Um, all right. Well, let's get to the the God's honest truth. PJ, what do you want to rate the Piper P- at the Gates P- of Dawn? I think you it better go first. Oh, okay. I was gonna say it better not be one at least, please. Um, I'm gonna give Piper at the Gates of Dawn a. Boy, now I'm waffling. I usually think about it before the episode so that I kind of have an answer at least in mind, but now I'm waffling because I didn't think about it. I'm going to say a 7 out of 10. <laughs> I was thinking... That, I was, that is wildly high. I was thinking of an 8, but I think I got to go 7 because I do... I will re-listen to this album. I probably will skip Matilda Mother and Chapter 24 and m- maybe Flaming. So Pete, you're it's a seven, me. I think. Oh, you're going, yeah? I'm going one. I'm going one out of 10. This w- is as bad as Frank. <laughs> not, not, well. Is this worse I, than Frank? <laughs> I would rather listen to Frank than listen to this, Damn. dude. I will that is, never that's go back. That's crazy to me. I cannot imagine how that's true. I'll never go back and listen to this album, first off. But I will also never go back and listen to a single song off this album. That's crazy. Like, that's I could forget about it and be fine. I don't I don't understand, but I respect I, your opinion. <laughs> I mean, I think it boils down. We've only really talked about probably four psychedelic albums, and that yeah. would be... Um, her Satanic Majesty's Request, and then the three Jimi Hendrix albums. We completely disagreed on Satanic Majesty and then agreed on Jimi yep. Hendrix. But Jimi Hendrix is less, like, he didn't think he was psychedelic. He think, thought he yeah. was doing, like, blues rock, you know? He was basically um, just doing think, that with some effects on top and stuff. Yeah, and I think other people labeled it psychedelic. So I think, I mean, that being said, really, we've talked about one album that has been, like, that the band has labeled psychedelic. Yeah. And we disagreed wholeheartedly, and this is the second one, and we <laughs> disagree wholeheartedly. Yeah. yeah. I th- I think it's – I hated it. I did not enjoy listening to it a single time. Yeah. Well, I am sorry. I didn't hate that. it. I don't want to say I hated it. Yeah. I didn't like it, though. Yeah. Yeah, well, sorry, Pete. <laughs> things will probably only get better from here, I hope. Yeah. Is that the first yeah. time – I think that might be the first time we've started a run with a with a one. Like that's that's oh, pretty rough. Beach Boys had to have been a one. Yeah. Oh, maybe. Yeah, it's possible. Well, it can it can literally only get better from here then. It's true. Sure. I doubt I'll give another one a one. It seems unlikely, although we don't know. As I've said, I, I'm pretty unfamiliar with their late 60s stuff, so I'm not sure if it'll get better before it, or if it, it might get worse before it gets better. Let's hope so. Not, man. Yeah, let's I can't hope give not. an album as a zero, I don't think. Uh, We haven't yet, so I feel like it would be mean <laughs> to start. Unprecedented, now. yeah. Yeah. You only gave Satanic Majesty's request a three, but I gave it a seven, so I'm consistent at least. Yeah, you you give any psychedelic rock a seven. That's right. All right. Well, that's been it for the inaugural 
episode of the Pink Floyd Fellas. Um, we don't usually do plugs on the show, but I think we should plug something, Pete. Oh yeah, I forgot that we have a we had we I I almost forgot our little uh, breadcrumb trail was leading to a beautiful gingerbread house in the woods. We we've discussed this uh, at least on two other podcasts before, um, but we are starting a podcast with our friend of the show, Paul, mm-hmm. called Fake Bands, Real Music. Yep, and um, it's about um, fake bands. Um, shit, what's it about? You got a peep. I don't remember. Uh, it's about fake bands. Yeah, but real music. I know that I so, know that there's real music and that the yeah. Uh, and that the fake the bands are fake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll be covering the best oh. bands from your favorite movies. I remember what it is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We're gonna talk about every movie that features a band that is not a real band, but played some some real music in that in that show show. Like I'm a 90 year old man. Yeah. Um, we're gonna talk about your favorite your favorite shows at the Picture House. Yeah. Um, and yeah, rank rank those bands, rate their music. Talk about who has the best albums of all time. So, best yeah. fictional albums of all time. Should be a good look. It will not be on this RSS feed. It will be on a separate one. So, just go ahead and search Fake Bands Real Music on your podcast app. Yep. Yeah, we'll throw it in the notes whenever we start it up. So, All right. And I'll see you on the other side of that rainbow, Pete. <laughs> That's right, PJ. See you next time. Other side of that moon would be good. Oh, yeah, I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. That's a good one. God damn it. We'll have to do it next time. A Beach Boys Boys production.